Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. First Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're turning uh, your Bibles there, I want to share with you guys uh, a couple of different events this morning before we get started. So the first event uh, really happened just a couple years ago. We were uh, at family camp. Man, we were over at Kidder Creek. It was a wonderful time, just enjoying some, some fellowship and some fun over there. And it was Friday night. It was the first night. And I remember we were all gathered around the campfire, and I was leading some worship, and man, the, the wind picked up, and the thunder was clapping, and the lightning was striking in the distance. And, and the crazy thing is we were singing uh, How Great Thou Art. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. It was just this crazy thing. And we were all just like, wow, Lord, that's so cool that the lightning would be striking and the thunder would be rolling as we're singing about how magnificent you are in the middle of the thunder and the lightning. Well, worship kind of ended and we all headed to bed. And as we were kind of packing it in for the night, uh, we saw this ominous glow this telltale sign of a forest fire as we looked towards Wairika. And very quickly, our kind of awe and wonder and excitement turned to concern. And rumors started to spread about how Wairika was on the verge of being evacuated. And, and you know how rumors go. Boy, people start lighting up Facebook and you're like, oh, all of Wairika got burned to the ground. What do we do? And so the next day, man, people, uh, rightfully so, were concerned. And so they started leaving uh, Kidder Creek there over in the valley and they were heading home to check on their, their things, to, to pull their documents and pets and everything that they needed. And, uh, you know, me and my wife, uh, we, we came over and we did the exact same thing. And, and I'll never forget, as we're rolling into town, it was just like this scene. It was like apocalyptic. The, the smoke was so thick and, and people were leaving town with their rigs all loaded down, uh, hauling their ATVs and their boats and whatever they had, trucks kind of heaping with all their stuff. And, uh, we would drive through certain parts of town, and it was just like there was nobody even around. It was just empty. And then, uh, you know, other people were still packing up and, and getting ready to go. Uh, there were sprinklers. Maybe you guys remember that there were sprinklers that were just left on roofs, just running. And uh, it was crazy. And then as we were driving up North Street, we saw this this cloud of smoke just roll over the hill and start rolling down. It was like a pyroclastic flow. It's just like, and people were just like, oh, the smoke, the fire is coming. And people were running for their lives. It was a crazy thing. People were just scrambling. It was like the end of the world was coming. Now, you guys know that that fire never really even got that close to town. Praise the Lord, right? A rainstorm came through and put it all out, and, and that was wonderful. But it was just one of those things where we said, hey, we're not going to take any chances, Right? We're not, we're not going to risk it. We are getting out of here. This is just not something that we are, are willing to risk. And so we're going to leave. The, the second story is uh, a story that happened like 19 years before this last one. as in 2003. And you guys have heard of, of Siegfried and Roy. Right? They're the, the, the dynamic duo there. They used to be. I think they're both dead, actually. Now, I'm not sure. I shouldn't say that. But anyways, <clears throat> they were the famous magicians there in Las Vegas. They were, you know, re- they, they were famous. They were known for their huge magic shows that included these 
huge, like 500, 600 pound tigers. And so it was there on October 3rd, 2003. It was, they were going on stage just like any normal show, but that night was different. One of those tigers grabbed a hold of, of Roy by the throat in front of all the people, all the audience, drug him off of the stage, and it almost killed him. And, you know, it's funny because, well, that's not funny, but the interesting thing, actually, that is interesting. It's interesting because a couple years later, uh, not a couple years, just a couple years ago, last year, actually, they reopened that investigation. They said, well, what really happened there? Uh, you know, why did the tiger really attack Roy? And there's all of these theories that they came up with. Well, maybe it was the... the the conservation people, PETA, the animal activists, they were there in the crowd and they did something to make the tiger attack or maybe they infiltrated his staff. Uh, one person suggested that it was Roy's new blood pressure medication or that he had had a stroke. Roy himself said, boy, the tiger was just trying to protect me. The tiger was trying to protect me as he grabbed my throat with his jaws and drugged me off stage like he was gonna to eat me. Uh, there's no mystery. Uh, you know what happened? You played with the tiger. And then you ended up almost dying. Now, what do those two events have in common? Absolutely nothing. But they do illustrate two very different responses we can have to danger, to dangerous situations. Right? We can either flee danger we can say, hey, look, man, this isn't worth it. I'm not taking this risk. It's better to be safe than sorry. Or we can flirt with danger and experience the disastrous consequences. You see, here in chapter 6 of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> there was a great danger at the church there in Corinth that Paul is warning them of. He's given them some solid advice. He says, man, there's this great danger amongst you. This is what you need to do. You need to flee. You need to run for your life. What was the danger that Paul was warning the Corinthian church about? The pack of rabid wolves? Or was it some, some nomads that were coming through, murderous men? Was it a hurricane? No, it wasn't. What was it? Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul tells the Corinthian church, flee sexual immorality. That danger that Paul was warning the Corinthians to run for their lives from was sexual immorality. And that word for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. And that word encompasses all manner of sexual immorality, fornication, any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage, uh, adultery, uh, that is infidelity, uh, homosexuality, any of it. Paul says, run for your life. Flee from that. You see, as we've discussed previously, sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. It was a, a city that was saturated with sex. And part of the reason that Corinth was so saturated with sex that they dealt with sexual immorality was because the temple of Aphrodite was there. And the, the goddess of Aphrodite was the goddess of uh, love and of desire and of, uh, you know, sexual immorality, uh, beauty. That was, you know, her thing. And the temple was there. And along with the temple 
came the 1,000 temple prostitutes, both male and female, who would descend upon the city every single night to commit their sins, to commit their wicked acts. And so this type of behavior was not only not frowned upon in Corinth, but it was actually encouraged, it was celebrated, it was considered a good thing, sacred prostitution. It was your civic duty. And so Corinth was, it was such a vile place. There was so much sexual immorality that to be called a, a, a Corinthian was the, the lowest moral insult that you could give. A Corinthian girl and prostitute were synonymous terms. And so you say, well, you know, what's the big deal? Let the world be the world. Yeah, I mean, the world is a crazy place, but the Corinthian church was getting involved in this, uh, this sexual immorality as well. And so Paul says, listen, flee from this. It was such a common thing in their culture that it was just kind of, it was just another, it was another craving to satisfy. It was just another, uh, you know, appetite to, to satisfy. You kind of look back at verse, what is it, 12 or 15? Let me look and see here. I think it's verse 12. Yeah, verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. So for the Corinthians, sex was just like, you know, another appetite to satisfy. Your stomach gets hungry, you give it food. Your body desires uh, lustful things, you just give it sex. What's the big deal? They had a very casual relationship with sex. Does that sound at all familiar? we may not have uh, a thousand temple prostitutes descending upon our community every single day, but I tell you what, we have a very similar approach when it comes to sexual immorality as they did. We are very casual in our culture with sex. And that's why immorality is so rampant in our culture as well. I started to look at some statistics just on marriage. Like, how, how is marriage doing in the United States of America? And I found this, uh, this chart that was from the U.S. Census Bureau. And it started back in the 60s. And it traced kind of the rate of marriage from the 60s until now. And it starts out, I mean, in the 60s, everybody was getting married. That's what everybody wanted to do. It was all about getting married and having kids and buying a house and having, you know, is the American dream. But now, nobody's going to, it's like uh, the graph, it's like a ski slope. It's like a double black diamond ski slope. It's like, man, we're, we're trending into abyss. Nobody's getting married these days. Cohabitation is the new norm. Uh, you know, why get married? We'll just have this, you know, relationship. We'll be committed to each other. And it was interesting that as I kind of dug into this, what I found is that there are an increasing amount of young ladies who are saying, what is going on? Why won't he commit to me? Why won't he marry me? Well, that's because you're giving him everything that he wants without having to commit. And so there's this situation with marriage, but that has a, a, an impact because you look at the, the birth rate, how many births happen to unmarried versus married people, 40% of the babies born in the United States are born to mothers out of wedlock. It's just a statistic uh, that I, I found. Uh, adultery is uh, at an all-time high 
and it is increasing every year. It's trending up, 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 up. Uh, the acceptance of and normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism. We talked on Wednesday night about how this culture has really infiltrated the church, how we have affirming churches now that say, hey, you know what? God calls it a sin. We say, no big deal. You just be you, and everything will be all right. We talked on Wednesday night how there is this movement. Churches in the United States are having uh, drag queens do like Bible story hours, we say, man, it's crazy, but it's not just churches. It's every aspect of our culture. We see this uh, acceptance and normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism. Schools, there are schools in our uh, country where they are being taught not to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of our country, but they're pledging allegiance to a rainbow flag. And this used to be like fringe stuff. You'd be like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. I'm not really. I wish that I were. In our churches, in our schools, in our government, Rachel Levine, Levine, I'm not exactly sure how you say it, but I found this individual, because I was just looking to see how this had infiltrated our, our government, and Rachel, I'll just say Levine, four-star admiral, nominated as woman of the year, was an honoree, and you say, wow, what a brave woman, but what a neat thing. Turns out, he's a dude. His name is Richard. He's a big gorilla-looking guy who wears a dress who is a four-star admiral who has never served a day in his life in the military. It's like this whole thing. He's part of, he's the head of like the, the health department of the United States, which has a very similar ranking system as like the Coast Guard and everything else, the Navy. But you say, what, what's going on? He's actually a pediatrician who's in charge of charting the course for the health of our children. That's even worse. And, and I don't say this to, to make fun of this individual. Man, the, the struggle that he must go through internally as he wrestles this out, man, I can't even imagine. But you guys remember, how many of you guys remember MASH? MASH 4077? You guys remember Corporal Max Klinger? He was the guy who dressed up like a chick so that the army would think that he was crazy so that he wouldn't have to be in the Korean War. Right? It, it used to be something that was, oh, we just laugh at it, but now it's something that's that's normal. We have a real four-star admiral in our government is charting the course for, for our young kids. And so uh, it's not just uh, the acceptance of and the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism, but we see the sexual perversion all throughout all forms of entertainment that we uh, are just taking in, consuming on huge levels as a culture and even as a church. You know, the things that we see on just primetime TV is like normal TV. If I were to, to resurrect my great-grandfather from the dead and we just sit down and watch some evening TV together, the things that we don't even notice as a culture as being wrong, he would first probably kick my TV over and then he would just be embarrassed about, you know, because that's just not something that was normal in his day. Pornography is part of that entertainment. 97 billion dollar industry in the United States, pornography. 20% of all searches are linked to pornography, people searching for pornography. Listen to this statistic. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Teens and young adults 13 to 24 believe not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. It's crazy. 
Uh, but this is the norm for a whole new generation. And you say, well, well, what's the big deal? Well, these actions have consequences. They're harmful. And we are actively mutilating children under the guise of affirming care. We're saying, you know what? If, if you want to, as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, have your breasts chopped off, then we will get behind that as a culture and, you know, there are even movements, there's laws that people are trying to pass in different states to where if you don't agree with your child, little Johnny comes home and says, Dad, I think I'm a girl. He say, no, son, you're not, and these are the things I'm going to change. And he goes to CPS, and you get your kid taken away. And then abortion. You cannot talk about this topic of sexual immorality and not bring abortion into the conversation because the majority of abortions are performed as an act of birth control. So I don't want that. And you'll hear those who are in support, the the pro-choice crowd say, oh, well, you know, they always bring up the, the rape and the incest, which is less than a percent of a percent of the cases. But overwhelmingly, the reason that abortions are performed is it's just a form of birth control. I don't want that kid. It was, a, it was a mistake. 42 million babies have been murdered since 1973. Think about how many people that is. It's a huge number of people. And so there's no question about it, folks. We look at Corinth and we say, "Woo, they were bad. They had them temple prostitutes coming down and gross. We are, we are just in the same situation that they were in. We have a problem with sexual immorality. And what would Paul's advice be to us today? If he wrote a letter to the church at Wairika, it'd be the same advice that he gave to the church at Corinth. Run. Like Gandalf, run, you fools. Run. Flee. Run for your life. And we say, well, in our culture, what's the big deal with sin? Even church, even young people coming up in the church say, well, what's the big deal with sexual immorality? Well, here's the big deal with sexual immorality. First of all, Sexual immorality brings great harm to our bodies personally. Look at verse 18 again. We'll continue reading it. Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is a sin. We sin against ourselves. It's not that Paul is saying sexual immorality is worse than any other type of sin. He's saying that sexual sin is unique has a unique effect on the body. Uh, it, it destroys a person like no other sin because it's such an intimate thing. Uh, it affects the human on the deepest level. It affects us physically. It affects us mentally. It affects us emotionally. It affects us spiritually. Every aspect of your being is compromised when you engage in sexual immorality. And, you know, physically, you know, a huge consequence of sexual immorality is STDs. You know, there are more than 30 sexually transmitted diseases currently. 30! When I was in high school, there was like four. Now there are 30, and 30% of those are not curable. In 1967, one in 32 high school students had an STD. In 1984, one in 18. The last study in 2017 that the CDC did in Chicago, one in four high school girls had a sexually transmitted disease, and the most prevalent is HPV, the human papillovirus. And, you know, that is a more damaging virus currently in our culture than AIDS is. 
But you really don't hear about it. You hear about the AIDS epidemic and all these things. But this is something that flies under the radar. Uh, it's a devastating part of sexual immorality, sexually transmitted diseases. It's a real fun thing to talk about at church, huh? What you guys talk about at church today? STDs? Oh, my gosh, I'm not going to your church. There's a story, Tim Hawkins, you guys know, he's the... Uh, He's a comedian. He plays a guitar, all sorts of funny songs. Well, he was telling a story one time about how he had visited a church, and he had done his uh, comedy show, and after the show, he was in the foyer of the church. They're signing autographs and, and meeting people, and one lady came by, and she said, hey, man, wonderful show. Uh, is there any way that you could sign an autograph for my son? And by the way, could you write your favorite verse underneath your autograph? And he said, all right, great, no problem. And he signs the autograph, and he's like, oh, what was that verse? And he couldn't really remember the address of the verse that he wanted to reference, and so he just kind of guessed. And then after the show, he went and he referenced to see, well, what did I actually write? Psalm 38.7 is the, the verse that he wrote on that lady's signature for her son. And it says, for my loins are full of inflammation. <laughs> oh, man, poor guy. Interesting thing. Uh, but sexual immorality, man, there's a consequence that is attached to that physically, to our bodies. But not just physically, it affects our, our bodies mentally and emotionally. It affects our souls. There in Proverbs 6, uh, Solomon, he wrote this, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. What is our soul? Your soul is the essence of who you are. It's the seat of your emotions. It's your, your mental faculties. It's your personality. And this is what Paul and Solomon are both saying. When you engage in sexual immorality, and every time you do, you give a piece of yourself away. You give a, a piece of yourself away, a piece of your honor, a piece of your purity. It's thrown away. There's a defiling and there's a degrading that takes place, a giving away of virtue. Because we see that, that Paul mentions this uh, here in verse 16. He says that the two become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. When God created marriage and this union between a man and a woman, this beautiful thing of sex is a gift from God made to, to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. And Paul, he, he plays on what is said in Genesis, that truth, that the two become one flesh. See, when you engage in sexual activity with another individual, there's a part of you that you give to them and a part of them that you give, they give to you. There's this exchange that happens. And between a man and a woman, boy, you take a, a, a man and imagine like cups of, of water that are dyed a color, like a red glass of water and then a, a blue glass of water, a husband and a wife. And you pour those together and you get this royal purple. And you say, oh man, the two came together and made this beautiful thing. But then you take that purple and you add a little bit of orange and then you add some green and then you add some yellow and, and all you're left with is dirty water. And Paul says, man, be careful. When you engage in that, you, you give a part of yourself every, uh, away every time you engage in that until pretty soon there's, there's nothing really left but dirty water. It's polluted. Not only does sexual immorality affect our body physically, it not only does it affect our soul, seat of our emotions and who we are, personality, but it also affects our spiritual well-being, our, our eternal well-being. Back up just a little bit. Look at this with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, the, the chapter when, look at verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul here says, man, if you are actively engaged in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is not a once-off thing in Scripture. This list is also given to us in Galatians. We talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night, how the, the tops of those lists, you always see sexual immorality. Will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if you've been tripped up in this area before, if you've committed fornication or adultery in the past, that, you will, uh, that you, you'll, you're banned from heaven? Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, this is a reference to those who are actively, unapologetically, uh, continually, habitually, uh, calculatedly, unrepentantly involved in sexual immorality. This, this, this is those who would, who would shake their fists at God and say, you know what, hey, listen, I know that God says it's wrong, but this is what I'm going to do anyways. This is who I am. This is where I find my identity. Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who practice such things, what does it mean to practice sin like that? I remember when I was in the sixth grade, and I spent hours upon hours upon hours perfecting the kickflip. There in my garage, like, all right, I'm going to be a skater. And then as we grew, we'd spend hours skating. Man, we're going to hit this rail over and over and over again until we can get this one rail or this one thing. We practiced with the intent of getting as good as we possibly could at it. Paul says, those of you who are practicing these things unapologetically, unrepentantly, unremorsefully, to get as good as you can at them, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might say, Pastor Jeremy, you've taught, uh, you know, uh, eternal security as far as salvation is concerned in the past. Are you, are you changing your Not at all. Not at all. I believe that once you are born again, you're saved, you're saved. And there's nothing that can undo that. But what I would say is that if you are engaged in these things and it doesn't bother your heart whatsoever, there's no repentance, there's no conviction, I would be like John and I would question whether or not you were really saved to begin with. First John 2.19 says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that, they were, uh, that none of them were of us. But those who were uh, apostates, who bailed in John's day. John says they didn't fall away. They didn't leave. They were never a part of. And, and that's what I would say. Regardless, if you are in this place this morning and you're engaged in those activities and there's no check in your spirit at all, and I would never be able to live in myself to stand up here and give you a false sense of security and say, once saved, always saved, brother, sister. You're good. I know that your life doesn't reflect it, but hey, I would say if you're actively engaged in these things and it doesn't bother you whatsoever, I would take a hard look at this first because eternity is a very precious thing to gamble. And so why do we stay away from sexual immorality? Because, man, it damages us in our physical body, in our soul, in our spirit, but not only does it hurt us, secondly, it hurts our Savior. Paul goes on to say here, in verse 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
Backing up to verse 15, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one with her body? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. We talked about before. Paul is saying this, hey, don't you understand that when you engage in these things, that God's spirit dwells in you? That as you engage in these activities, you're dragging Jesus along with you? And it, it wounds him, it hurts him, it grieves him greatly. The Bible tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's something that we don't often think about when we engage, and that's the secret sin. It's the one that nobody sees. But remember that when you engage in that, you're dragging Jesus along with you. And I just bring that up to say, hey, listen, and think about that the next time you are tempted to engage. So not only does it hurt our bodies physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, not only does it grieve our Savior, but Paul goes on there at the end of verse 19 to say, and you are not your own. You are not your own. What does that mean when he says you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18 says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but we were purchased, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, who is our spotless lamb. Here's what it really boils down to. Is that so often we live our lives like, hey, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do? With... But that's not the way that we approach our lives anymore as Christians. It's not what I want to do with my life. It's, Lord, what would you have me to do with my life? My life belongs to you. It was purchased with a price. We belong to the Lord. We belong to him. We don't, our body is not ours to give away. And so, man, sexual immorality hurts us, our body personally. It grieves our Savior. Our bodies really aren't our own to begin with. And fourthly, it's just a lie. This whole thing is just a lie. Why do we engage in sexual immorality? Because of what it promises. What does it promise? It promises excitement and fulfillment and satisfaction, happiness, joy. But let's check in with the expert on this issue of sexual immorality. King Solomon. You guys remember King Solomon? He had 700 wives. 700 wives. That means 700 mother-in-laws, just as something to think about. <laughs> He had 300 concubines. The man knew something about sexual immorality. And this is what he writes in Proverbs 5 to his son. He says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Let your, lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay a hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. See, sexual immorality does not bring joy or excitement or satisfaction or fulfillment. It brings death every time. Sexual immorality is like a rattlesnake wrapped in Christmas paper. It's like a mirage in the desert. It, it, it promises satisfaction. It promises refreshment. So you just keep chasing, but the, the more you chase it, the thirstier you get. The farther you chase it, the more lost you become. And it never, ever satisfies, ever. And Paul says, this is not for you guys. It's not for the believer. 
It brings great harm to you, to your Savior. Your body's not your own, and the whole thing is just a lie. So what's the answer? Paul says, run, flee. Literally, that means run for your life. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he quotes what he calls the, the fathers, the old school Christians. Even He's an old school Christian for us. But the guys were old school Christians to him. Now this is, I'm pretty sure it's probably Latin or Greek or I don't know what it is. Uh, but I'm going to slaughter it real quick. And this is what the saying was. Alia vida pugnado, sola libido fuguendo, vincture. Right? You don't know it either, so you don't really know how bad I butchered it. <laughs> but what that means, in whatever language it was in, is other vices may be conquered in fight. This only by flight. Run. That's what Paul says. Flee literally means run for your life. And we have the story of Joseph in the Old Testament as a perfect illustration. And there in Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 7, remember Joseph? He was sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ended up as a servant in Potiphar's house, this powerful Egyptian dude, and he was put in control over all of Potiphar's household. And this is what it says in verse 7 of chapter 39 in the book of Genesis. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. So this is, the, this is Potiphar's wife. This is the boss's wife putting the moves on Joseph. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you're his wife. He's saying, listen, this guy has trusted me with everything. Everybody listens to me. I'm the second guy in command. There's nothing I don't have access to except for you because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day by day. See, she just kept, kept going. She just kept coming after him. Joey, little pat on the butt every time she walked by. How you doing? Just temptation constantly. So uh, this kept going on. So as it was, she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her. He wouldn't listen to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. So Joseph caught in the situation. And what did he do? He ran for his life. He ran. He did not stick around and minister to her. He did not stick around to sympathize with her. He did not stick around to pray for her. He ran for his life. And here's the thing that I want you to notice real quick about Joseph and his story is that that was a costly decision for him. There was a lot that he stood to lose in rejecting that woman. His job, his freedom, and here's the thing, when we've been involved in sexual immorality and it's time to come clean and, and to cut it off, we say, man, I can't do that. I stand to lose so much. You stand to lose so much more if you continue. Joseph, man, he is an example for us to just run, to flee. But not only just run and flee, but to not even get close, right? Solomon, that expert, he continues on in Proverbs chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, in verse 7, hear me now, my children, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, the, the, the woman of immorality, and do not go near the door of her house. When it comes to fleeing sexual temptation, immorality, Solomon says, don't even go near the place of temptation. Run. 
Romans, Paul wrote this in Romans 13, 14. He said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You know those areas in your life that bring about temptation. Stay away from those things. Stay away from the things that tempt you to cross the line. Young couple, set boundaries in your relationship to protect your purity at all costs. Be accountable. Don't go to those places and people want to know, well, how far is too far? Can we hold hands? Can we kiss? Can we cuddle? It's going to be different for every person. Instead of trying to find out how far you can go, establish the boundary to say, we're going to make sure that we don't tempt ourselves to go down that path. Young brother, an old brother, sister. Man, if there's something that's tempting you, get rid of it. Delete the app. Delete the contact. Block the individual. Whatever it takes, don't even go close, Solomon says. Stay away. And then lastly, really, what's the, the real answer? The real answer is just to do it God's way. Proverbs 5 continues on. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad like streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? See, here's the thing. Marriage is the cheat code to unlocking all the wonderful blessings that lie within sex. You will not find satisfaction sexually outside of the marriage covenant. You might satisfy something in your flesh, in your carnal nature, but you will never find true satisfaction. Anything outside of marriage, any sexual activity outside of marriage is sexual immorality. Inside that covenant, man, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, the marriage bed is undefiled. But everything outside of that, man, you don't find joy and peace and happiness in that. And do you know that statistically, see, the world wants to lie. The world wants to say, man, if you want to be sexually satisfied, engage in all these weird fringe activities. That's where it's at. Do you know that statistically, survey after survey after survey, you know who is the most sexually satisfied in our country? Those who are engaged in monogamous Christian marriages. Isn't that interesting? But the world wants you to believe otherwise. Now, here's the thing that I do want to give you this, is that marriage is not that the end all. It's not like once you get married, you'll never, you'll never experience sexual temptation again. You still need to be on guard, and you still need to, to flee sexual immorality. But man, enjoy what the Lord has, has blessed us with, because here's the thing. I have this wood stove in my house, and it's got the glass door, and, and I love it. I love the fire that we build in the mornings and in the evenings. And man, it's warm and it brings light and it brings joy. And you guys know when you just hang out and relax and watch a fire, there's a peace that just comes from, from that fire. I love that fire. But you take that same fire out of your wood stove and you kindle that fire in the middle of your living room on the hardwood floor and you're going to have a totally different experience. That same thing that brought great joy and peace and satisfaction is going to now bring about death and destruction. And that really is 
the way that it is. And so I'm almost done. I am really. And so I know maybe you're like, all right, dude, we get it. We hear you, Pastor Jeremy, right? Sexual immorality is bad. But maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I'm caught up in it currently. I'm stuck in this place. Like, what do I do? Am I just damaged goods now? Am I just a cup of muddy water? Is the Lord just done with me? And I'm here to tell you that we have such an amazing, wonderful, forgiving God who desires to bring about restoration in your life. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John continues on in chapter 2, that same book, 1 John 2.1. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Right? Why does Paul give us all of these warnings? So that we won't sin. But if we do, we're not toast. He continues on. To say, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So here's the thing. I, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I don't want you to think that you are beyond forgiveness. I don't want you to get bogged down in condemnation. And there's forgiveness. There's a new start. I also don't want you to say, hey, there's forgiveness. So let's just go for it and sin anyways. Because there's great consequence in that. You guys remember the story in John? Or is it Matthew? I better check. I think it's Matthew. Oh, it's John 8. John 8, it's the, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And all the guys brought her to Jesus. And they all were there with a stone in their hand. And, and, and they brought him to Jesus and said, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? I mean, she should have been stoned for her adultery. But Jesus really didn't answer them. He just stooped down and began to write in the dirt. And many Bible scholars believe that he was writing these men's sins down. Perhaps uh, individuals that they had had sexual encounters with. And one by one, it says that they dropped their rock and they walked away. Jesus told them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all just walked away. And then those beautiful words, Jesus looked at that woman and, and said, is there nobody here to accuse you? Where are your accusers? And he says, I don't accuse you either. And what does he tell her? Go your way and what? Go your way and sin no more. See, there's forgiveness. There's regeneration. There's restoration that is available to us. And the Bible says, walk in that and go and sin no more. If you've been wrestling with that this morning, man, this morning, be forgiven, be restored, be made new. Confess your sin. Be forgiven and walk in the joy that that brings. And then let us go and sin no more. Let us be like those in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, and this is the last scripture I got. So I really am finishing with this. Revelation chapter 14, it's in that period we call the Great Tribulation. And that is, you know, the church has been raptured. God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And in the midst of all of that, we see in Revelation chapter 44 that there's these 144,000. 
right? They are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Trust me, I promise you, they are not the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are actually Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. It's like 144,000 evangelicals, <clears throat> or evangelists, rather. And they're like 144,000 Billy Grahams. They're just going around preaching the good news of the gospel. But Revelation 14.4 describes who these men were. It says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who followed the lamb wherever he goes. I love that. Let us be those who walk like that who flee from sexual immorality, who confess our sin, who walk in forgiveness, who go and sin no more, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Let us be those who say, I don't care what the world says. I know that they're selling this, this, this thing of sexuality as uh, something that we can just do whatever we want with. Don't buy that. Let's be a people who say, I'm going to walk in accordance to what the Lord says and enjoy the true blessing of what he's given us let us be those who say, you know what? I'm with Jesus. Don't give in. Remember that he forgives and he forgets, but don't play games with the Lord. Don't think that you can own a pet tiger and not get eaten. It doesn't happen. But go to the Lord and say, man, forgive us. And what an opportunity that we have. And you can come before the Lord this morning and you can confess your sin and you can be made new. You can be forgiven and I love, again, that we take communion so often because this is that touch point that we have. This is that, that reality. This is that, that recalibration. And Jesus knew that we would need it when he instituted it in the upper room, when he told his disciples, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. He told them not just to do this in remembrance of me, but as often as you do this, as often as you have bread and wine, constantly remember what I've done for you and who you are as a result that because his body was broken for us, because he was nailed to the cross, and he paid the price we couldn't pay, because his blood was shed for us, our sins are forgiven. And I would just encourage you this morning that as we come to the table, go before the Lord, walk in the forgiveness that is available to you. Don't leave this place under the heavy burden of condemnation, but leave this place in the joy and the freedom of forgiveness. And the Bible says that if you, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and that he died on the cross for you and that, that, that he was raised from the dead three days, then you're saved. Because I, I wonder if there aren't some in here who, who say, man, I, I've never been forgiven. I've had this burden of sin and not just sexual sin, but all sin. I want you to know that you can be forgiven as well. This is not just sexual sin. If you have never had your sins forgiven. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. And you don't need me to hold your hand. You don't need to come up here and make any special, you know, proclamation. You just go before the Lord and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. I put my faith and trust in the work of the cross. I believe. Please forgive me. My life is yours and you'll be saved. So let's do that work. As we come, man, whatever category you fit into this morning, do that business with the Lord because he's good and he loves us. Amen. So Lord, we love you. We praise you this morning. Thank you again for your forgiveness towards us. Lord, thank you for your body that was given for us on the cross, that you paid the price that we couldn't. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Lord, that our sins, though they were scarlet, they've been made white as snow. Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that we remember the reality of that.
that we would be encouraged, Lord, that we'd be refreshed, that we'd be restored. Thank you for what you've done. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.